LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Bill Still who joins us to discuss his new film, Jekyll Island, The Truth Behind the Federal Reserve. What's the real problem with the world economy? It's debt. Too much personal debt, too much corporate debt, and most importantly, too much government debt. People have a natural tendency to want to spend now, pay later, and governments are no different. The problem is that government money mostly comes from just two sources, taxation and borrowing. Governments can either raise taxes to cover their reckless spending or borrow from private banks and continue to kick the financial can down the road. Unfortunately, the vast sums governments owe to these private for-profit banks continually attracts interest and this mathematically unpayable debt is now strangling the life out of the economy of every nation on earth. But crucially, it's not just the sheer volume of interest paid to the banks It's the control over the political process that this debt gives them. We can never fix the instability in the world economic system until we forbid government borrowing. Economic instability favours banks and speculators, whereas economic stability favours the people. If banks control the creation of money, there is no way there will ever be a stable economic system. The good news is that it doesn't have to be this way. Banks don't need to be in control. Governments don't need to borrow. Governments do not need a national debt. Hello and welcome, Bill, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, thank you very much for having me. Now, Bill, today we're going to discuss your activism, your filmmaking, and indeed your your new film. Um, But you've been on this path of economic and monetary reform for many years, So perhaps before we dive into that, you could just tell listeners a bit about your background and how you came to be involved with this work. Well, yeah, I started out uh, as a a newspaper editor Uh, in 1980. I got a call from an old gentleman who um, said, boy, have I got a story for you. There's no gold left in Fort Knox. I just kind of rolled my eyes because when you run a newspaper, you get a lot of crazy calls. And so I developed an efficient way to deal with that. And I said, great, send me something in the mail. And the crazy people never had anything to send. And that was a very efficient use of time. Well, two days later, I got a thick packet of papers in the mail from this guy. He was uh, he was for real, and uh, he he was uh, a retired Ohio uh, businessman who was very wealthy and had uh, as his hobby. He was trying to get the federal government to re- to prove that uh, they did indeed have the amount of gold bullion in Fort Knox that they claimed to. And as a, a newspaper editor, right away I saw that this guy was not crazy. There were correspondence between himself and 
the Secretary of Treasury, the Bureau of the Mint, which has charge over Fort Knox, former commanding general of Fort Knox, etc. But the thing that really pushed it over the edge for me that showed me that the federal government was hiding something was uh, the fact that uh, according to federal law in the United States, the government has to do an annual physical audit of the gold reserves in Fort Knox. Physical audit means uh, core boring, uh, to be sure that uh, you know it doesn't have the gold bars don't have tungsten cores, and uh, you know one one had not been done since 1953. So you know at this point that's um, let's see. 47, 50, 60 years. So that's kind of a tip-off that something's wrong, that the government is hiding something. There's certainly, that's about as far from transparency as you can possibly get. The the largest hoard of uh, gold in the history of the world. 72% of world gold was in Fort Knox at the end of World War II. And yet they have uh, the most non-existent accounting systems and transparency uh, in the history of the world, so this is um, this is a, a pretty strange divergence that the government has yet to explain. And then you personally, obviously, got involved with this situation uh, later on because you, you've already we've talked about you've got a new uh, documentary just come out, Jekyll Island. But I mean, years ago you made the Money Masters. Some listeners may know you from that, and then Secret of Oz. So, what made you personally get involved with this? Well, the uh, that's I was just telling you how the first piece of information I got, which was in 1980, this uh, Fort Knox gold thing, and but I, I couldn't figure out how in the heck that fit in with everything because, you know, back in the United States in those days, uh, Austrian economic theory was in its ascendancy, and absolutely everyone who railed against the Federal Reserve believed that gold money was the answer. And so, you know, that was kind of my default position as well, that, you know, we needed a gold money system to create a stability, etc. But uh, so I just didn't figure out how this all fit together. And it took me years. It took me 12 years before I wrote, finally figured it out and wrote my first book in 1992. I would, I would keep coming back to it because when you run a newspaper, the only real, real time you have off is the week between Christmas and New Year's. And so I would take that week and try to do extra projects like write books or whatever it was that I wanted to do. And so that was really the only time I could spend on it. But I kept coming back to it just because it was so bothersome to me. And so finally I wrote a book in uh, 92 and then uh, uh, a wealthy gentleman called up and said, this is great. Let's make a documentary. And I said, that's fine. And so uh, in 90, that was in 95 and uh, uh, wrote the script in six weeks and was in Europe uh, filming six weeks later. So it came together very quickly and, uh, as you can see, has has been uh, surprisingly enduring over the years. As I say, some listeners will be well familiar with your work from books and documentaries past. But for those who are not, perhaps you could tell us something about the new one, Jekyll Island. I mean, the, the title comes from the location where the Federal Reserve System was created in the U.S. in 1913. And whether you're American or not, this was a very, very significant event. Right. It's uh, <clears throat> back in those days, the uh, they were called the Money Trust. They were the biggest bankers, J.P. Morgan, the Rockefeller family. They saw that they had deliberately created the crash of 1907 uh, to eliminate 
uh, some of uh, the Heinz Group's holdings, namely uh, competition to J.P. Morgan's recently purchased U.S. Steel, uh, the Knickerbocker Bank was in competition with both Morgan and the Rockefellers, and they wanted to eliminate those. So they uh, deliberately crashed the economy, then put out the rumor that the Knickerbocker Bank was in trouble, and pretty soon the whole Heinz empire was crumbling. But uh, uh, the thing got out of control and uh, spread throughout the nation, and thousands of banks uh, went out of business because they were so leveraged uh, through fractional reserve lending that uh, once people started rushing for the teller's cages to withdraw their money, there was no money to be had. And so a lot of banks folded, and it really got out of control. And so uh, back in those days, uh, people were in the United States were much more aware of uh, what was going on with the financial si situation and who was behind it. They were not so easily faked out uh, as they are today uh, with uh, pronunciations by the federal government that the Federal Reserve System is part of the government and so therefore the Fed has it under control and all of this. And so uh, they, they got very angry and they, they were pushing Congress very hard for true reform because the history of the United States uh, in the, the period uh, – in the, let's say, 20, 30 years before 1907 had been nothing but a series of deliberate booms and busts, crashes and, and depressions, and people were tired of it, and so they wanted reform. And so the bankers knew that they had to uh, get out ahead of this situation and uh, write their own legislation, which <clears throat> would not be uh, truly reforming, would not really hurt them. And But they also, there was a an honest press back in those days, uh, namely Joseph Pulitzer's World newspaper in New York. And um, so uh, he, he knew what the money trust was up to. And so they knew they, they had to, their, their legislation couldn't be identified as being having been written by bankers. So they decided to go meet in secret at J.P. Morgan's uh, island hideaway down off the coast of Georgia. It was called Jekyll Island and write the legislation there uh, over Thanksgiving weekend. No, no one was at the resort at that time. The uh, rich New Yorkers didn't really show up at Jekyll Island until after Christmas, and so they were safe, and they knew no one would spot them. And But despite that, they used extraordinary security precautions, such as none of them uh, used their last names. They were only referred to each other by their first names. And they met. They wrote the legislation. But the, the one... Uh, uh, legislator who was part of this select group of six or seven men uh, was uh, Senator Nelson Aldrich and he was uh, he was a very egotistical type of guy and so the legislation that came out of that meeting he insisted on having it called the Aldrich bill and people who immediately identified Aldrich as being the uh, bankers kept senator and so they uh, the bill was defeated in Congress, and so they had to take it back in. Uh, they made it look more diversified by having 12 banks spread throughout the United States. And uh, But really, uh, everyone knows that the, the New York Fed is uh, still re retains uh, virtual control, dominating control, hegemonic control of the this, this situation. So anyway, but then they, they called it the Federal Reserve System instead of the Aldrich Bill, with the implication being that this was really part of the government and and thereby the government operates in the public interest and you know thereby uh, the government and the Federal Reserve System were going to be watching out for we the people 
And of course, that turned out to not be true at all. The Fed really has, it's been ruled by federal courts, is is not a part of the U.S. government at all. It's a private corporation. The stockholders in the corporation are all the member banks. So, you know, if you have a corporation, you're you're hardly going to uh, see that, that corporation acting not in the best interest of its stockholders. And that's certainly the case. The Fed does not operate in the public interest. It operates in the banker's interest. And still, not one in a hundred people in the United States are cognizant of this fact because the the major media doesn't report it, doesn't talk about it. And uh, I, I found out over the course of the years exactly how that, why that happens. And that is that uh, uh, the major media, of course, uh, are loaned out to the max to uh, J.P. Morgan. And so they can't even afford to pay the interest on their loans. They require that these loans be rolled over once a year, once every two years, depending on the type of note, by Morgan. And that's really uh, a subtle form of control, but it's an absolute form of control. And so that's why you never hear this stuff. That's why I'll never get on network television in the United States. And uh, that's kind of the story of uh, how come this is... uh, kept from the public uh, in general. Now, you mentioned the engineered booms and busts prior to the creation of the Federal Reserve System, but really the this is against a background of a long history of attempts to establish a sort of a central banking system in the US because it sort of created and then shut down. I mean, Andrew Jackson springs to mind. This has been going on for centuries. Yeah, nowhere, nowhere in the world ha- has uh, a, a people, a nation... Uh, opposed this privately owned central bank system that was established in Great Britain with the founding of the Bank of England in 1694, more effectively and more determined, with greater determination than here in the United States. We've had implemented upon us a uh, this form of central bank on three different occasions, and we've killed it each and every time. Well, except for the fourth occasion, which was the implementation of the Federal Reserve System. So uh, um, it's, uh, coming up on its uh, 100th anniversary on December 23rd of this year, and uh, we posit that the American people could give themselves the most wonderful birthday present ever, and that's by getting rid of the Fed and uh, returning control over the quantity of American money in some form or fashion back to we the people instead of this private corporation. And as you explained, um, Federal Reserve, no more federal really than Federal Express. And a lot of people are under the illusion that the government kind of creates the nation's money. But most governments just create the, uh, the paper and the coins in circulation, most of the money supply being created by Uh, private central banks as debt, crucially. And you can perhaps explain exactly the implications of that. But the bottom line, really, particularly in America, when you look at the way that politics is funded, it gives the, the, the banking system incredible control and influence over the political process. Yeah, in fact, uh, in in most nations, uh, the national uh, government doesn't even issue the paper money for the benefit of all of its citizens. It only issues the coin money, which typically, on average, is about three only three percent of the money supply. Uh, banks, commercial banks, uh, have been nation by nation given the monopolistic privilege to issue the nation's money as debt. That's why you hear the term national debt. 
we don't have to have a national debt. That's the truth of it. Uh, nations should be should return to issuing their own national money without such debt. And the term national debt should absolutely fall into disuse and should be made illegal in every nation on earth. And that would eliminate uh, all this overspending problem that you see in various nations. It would eliminate uh, not only the interest on the debt, but the control that the uh, generation of a national debt gives. Why control? Because <clears throat> when nations go out and borrow, Yes, they can borrow from pension funds and from grandma wanting to save money and stuff like that. But it ends up the, the majority of all money that is lent to governments through the issuance of bonds, which creates this national debt, uh, is uh, lent to the government by commercial banks. And uh, I maintain that until you attack this national debt problem, you're never going to get effective legislation through any legislature because uh, the borrower is servant to the lender. And so when you have the very government itself borrowing primarily from banks, there's no way you're ever going to get effective legislation uh, diminishing the power and money of the bank in favor of the average person, the common man. So uh, I think you have to attack that first. Uh, there are those I know in Britain who feel that this is, isn't a, a good plan, that we need to attack uh, fractional reserve lending first. But in order to get any type of legislation uh, through on eliminating fractional reserve lending, you kind of have to go to the legislature to get a law passed. And so I think that's going to be very difficult to get a law passed that is actually effective instead of, as the Federal Reserve Act, just made to look effective when, in fact, it, it really just gives the banks even more power, just a more subtle power, more a power that's more difficult for the average person to understand. You mentioned fractional reserve lending, which is a very important term, very important concept, because on the face of it, when explained by a banker, it doesn't sound so insidious, but it actually is, especially when we consider where banks get their money from in the first place. Perhaps you could just briefly sum up the fractional reserve system and why that's led to the instability and problems that it has. Well, banks have, uh, have the, the capability throughout history to uh, lend out more money than they actually have. Um, they, of course, get this through legislation. They, they'll uh, buy off uh, members of the legislature to whatever extent is necessary to get these types of bills passed, uh, which, for example, typically it's been the 10% rule for the last uh, nearly a century, and that is that if a bank has a million dollars of real money uh, in their bank, uh, then they can go and lend out uh, 10 times that amount. Um, so they're actually creating uh, nine times of that money uh, just literally out of thin air, and then they, they have the monopolistic privilege of charging us interest on that money, money that they never really had in the first place. And when you, you look at the history of, of the three failed attempts at central banking in the United States, which is really the only place you can get uh, adequate data because there's always been uh, such a group of people opposed to this concept that they collect the data and pass it down from generation to generation. And that is that uh, these bankers typically they'll they'll say, well, uh, 
uh, we're we're going to put up 80% of the money and the government only has to put up 20% of the money to get the bank going. But the government has to put its 20% in first. <laughs> mm. And so the government does that and then the bankers uh, lend the money to each other through fractional reserve lending to come up with the additional 80%. So the bankers end up actually putting in nothing to get this operation going. So uh, the taxpayers end up being on the hook every single time, no matter which way you turn, under this debt money system run by essentially privately owned central banks. Now this sounds like a pretty good business to be in. Uh, a lot of people will be thinking, so what's to stop you and me tomorrow forming the Bank of Bill and Greg, and maybe we'll offer slightly better terms to small businesses and the man in the street. Well, why can't we do that? Well, we can. Uh, we, you, ha you have to you have to follow certain international banking rules, and uh, it's rather expensive, and you have to have the expertise to know how to negotiate the the shoals of trouble. Uh, but uh, in the United States, there are actually two ways of getting a banking license, and I don't know if this is the case anywhere else in the world, but. Uh, the founding fathers of the U.S. were very determined to spread out power to the maximum extent that was politically practical. And so they <clears throat> they gave the Congress of the United States only limited powers, and they reserved the rest of the powers to the individual state governments and to we the people. And so uh, uh, the way banks were chartered uh, initially was they were chartered by the individual state governments. And so that's a little bit an easier entity to deal with than having to deal with the federal, a federal government charter uh, through the Federal Reserve in, the, in this day and age. This was modified during the term of Abraham Lincoln in order to, make, to, to keep his greenback money being issued. He had to submit to something called the National Banking Act, which uh, then allowed uh, bank charters to be granted by the federal government. So we could do it. We could we could either get a federal charter or we could get a state charter. Uh, we'd we'd ha actually have to put up real money because uh, we we aren't buddy buddy with any big bankers. But uh, yeah, you could do it, and uh, it's a, a great business to be in. There's something quite interesting going on just while you were talking about states or you know individuals doing it differently. So something interesting going on in, in it's North Dakota, isn't it? At the minute. Yeah, the Bank of North Dakota is kind of the one uh, uh, wonderful exception to the way banks do business here in the United States, and that is it. It was uh, a bank chartered by their state. It used the state bank charter, and uh, it created a bank uh, for the use of the state. And so then all the state's uh, money and all of their uh, assets and reserves went into this bank. And uh, if you have a, a state with all the uh, you know, hundreds of years of infrastructure, roads, bridges, uh, uh, government buildings, that's worth a lot of money. So you can, uh, you know, on the asset side of the, the ledger, a state uh, which forms its own bank uh, becomes bigger immediately than any commercial bank in the world. So that's what North Dakota did, even though it's it's one of the smallest states. It only has a population of 600,000 people. Back uh, in the, uh, I think it was 1918, they uh, finally convinced their state legislature to uh, uh, grant a uh, state banking license to the state itself. And they put all of their uh, re tax revenues into this bank and all of the state's business is done to the bank. Now, the and they, of course, they initially had, you know, 
a very difficult time uh, figuring out how to do this because no one had ever done it before. Uh, instead of opposing, their strategy was instead of opposing the the normal uh, commercial banks, uh, they actually helped them because, uh, as I said, the, the state bank has such vast resources that uh, they can easily provide uh, short-term lending to the local commercial banking establishment uh, to help them out of jams and stuff like that. So, so the local uh, commercial banking establishment establishment in North Dakota <coughs> loves the State Bank of North Dakota. But uh, really, the big advantage for a state is that uh, if the state wants to borrow money, it no longer has to go to J.P. Morgan in New York and negotiate, you know, some type of an interest rate because. As you know from mortgages, any type of major funding that's done over the long term, which of course uh, all all state bonded indebtedness is done that way, can end up costing you uh, double what the initial uh, amount is. And so, for a state which views things in much longer terms than uh, than you know we private citizens. Uh, this is a big deal. So the State Bank of North Dakota never has to go to the New York Money Center banks to uh, uh, float bonds, to borrow money for, you know, let's say they want to build a, a brand new interstate highway, something that's very expensive and has to be done over years. They don't have to uh, issue bonds, which are then sold into the open market. They can, they can self-bond. They can borrow money from their own bank. And so that saves them a lot of money, but it also saves them the control of the big New York money center banks. And so they're uh, uh, relatively free in this country. So I've been part of a movement for maybe the last three or four years to try to get uh, the various states to follow the State Bank of North Dakota template because this is not an experiment at this point. This has been going on almost 100 years, and that's why North Dakota – has the lowest unemployment rate. Uh, it's always able to balance its budget. Uh, has the highest birth rate, lowest tax rate of any place in the country. And you, one would think that other states would catch on to this right away and jump on it, but it's been surprisingly difficult. So uh, just news came out today uh, that uh, uh, San Francisco has has decided to charter, uh, ask the state of California to charter for a bank charter for a city bank of San Francisco based on the Bank of North Dakota model. So this is a real breakthrough. So it's uh, un unusual that, you know, we're doing this interview today because this is really a landmark day in American banking history that uh, we actually have a major political entity which is now going to follow the uh, Bank of North Dakota model. Well, um, hopefully some of the pressures being brought to bear in the system now will encourage more people to do the same. But one of the key manifestations of this flawed system that we're seeing is the way that government finances state and government, and this, this applies globally, it's almost better to list the countries not affected by this than those affected, is that the f government finances are like a Ponzi scheme in terms of healthcare benefits, retirement, all sorts of expenses. Basically, the, the debts involved are mathematically impossible to repay. And we see this is what's happening in Detroit and other uh, places filing for bankruptcy, not always being accepted, of course. There's a lot of people fighting that tooth and nail. But we really do have a system where I don't know how it's going to unwind. It's getting to its limits now, I think. Oh yeah, there's absolutely no solution to it in in the uh, the normal debt money system. 
uh, they can try to cover it up and as you use the term Ponzi scheme, you know, promote various different types of Ponzi schemes to try to try to hide the fact that the system is being crushed under the weight of debt at this point, not just in the United States, but of course, in every nation on earth. And uh, you're seeing this more and more in Europe. The the euro is, is doomed to failure and collapse. They cannot deal with the debt situations of the peripheral countries. Uh, Iceland, Ireland, Greece, Portugal, Spain, Italy. Uh, this is all, they can hold it off a little while longer maybe, but at some point the system's going to crack and break, just as it is here in, the, in this country with uh, the bankruptcy of Detroit. And I know for a fact that other uh, large uh, northern industrial cities are right on the edge right now as well, and they're watching this Detroit situation very very closely to see how Detroit gets out of it. If Detroit can manage some type of a, a federal bailout, getting the rest of us taxpayers in the United States to send them money, which of course would only be a short-term solution and wouldn't work. Uh, well, of course, there, there's going to be lots of other cities in line right behind. So uh, it's a situation that uh, is a harbinger of bad things to come. Now, the, the good news is we don't have to do it this way. We can fix this, but you can't do it within the banker's debt money system where the bankers are in control of the quantity of the national money. You just can't do it. So uh, we're not going to learn that lesson, though, probably until uh, we feel a lot more pain here in this country and elsewhere. And that's kind of the message that I'm trying to spread get this thing going before the pain uh, gets to be maximum. Now, the, uh, the uh, global financial crash of um, 07, 08 kind of looks inevitable in in hindsight, although there were those, of course, uh, forecasting it yourself included. But a lot of people kind of put that in the already in the filing cabinet of history. But of course, it's ongoing and there are regular shocks uh, still ringing out from this. And I think that you know your point is right, that there's there is more pain to come. It's just a question of when that becomes so severe as to actually provoke some some kind of some different strategy, not just more of the same. Because we've seen particularly, you mentioned uh, the euro. Um, I mean, I've listened to the media over here and it's kind of subsided somewhat now. But there was a period there where every single month they were having a summit to fix the euro and then nothing much seemed to get decided at that. And then bad numbers came out again and they'd have another summit to fix the euro. And it's basically, it's a political construct, really, wasn't it, the euro? It wasn't actually designed almost like by economists as such. It was a, a political scheme. It certainly failed. And as I said before, there there's no, no possible way that it can succeed at this point. And so, for example, Turkey is uh, considering getting on board at this point. But there's uh, considerable and rising uh, political opposition in Turkey to it uh, from those who very wisely see that this is nothing less than an economic titanic that's uh, going to sink and, and why why go jumping on uh, just as it, it dips under the waves. What did you make of uh, what happened in Cyprus with the, the, the bail-ins? I mean, a lot of people thought that was a Rubicon that would never be crossed and yet there it was. Well, it was crossed, and there, there is hardly, uh, except in in the alternative media, there's there's hardly a, a Twitter about it. I mean, <clears throat> suddenly you had private bank 
depositors uh, bailing out essentially a nation uh, involuntarily. That's uh, alarmingly, we find out that this has been in the central banking game plan for a number of years now, that this was the alternative. You know, the thing is that th these guys know what's going to happen. They, they see down the road. They, they know that their system's going to fail. And so they're just trying to stay out ahead of the game to uh, position themselves in the best way possible. And uh, they're probably surprised that the thing is held to together as long as it has. Do you think they, they're sort of gaming scenarios for an end game? I mean, you certainly must have thought about how this could be unwound. It's difficult to see how it could be, but presumably there must be. I, mean, I don't know how you think this might be. Not perhaps your own personal choice of how this would be undone, but how you, what you think might be some likely scenarios. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question and, and is very relevant because uh, I, I believe the way this is going to go down at some point, once the next big crash comes, which is absolutely inevitable, I mean, all signs now in markets point to catastrophe up ahead, just as they did in 2007, but to an even greater magnitude. And at that point the central bankers have pretty much run out of bullets to try to fix this thing. I mean, they've already got interest rates down at zero. Then the latest thing they tried was uh, uh, economic stimulus. In other words, the central banks buying government debt uh, directly, and they did it in a coordinated manner so that it, it the inflation wouldn't show up so badly because uh, if just one nation did it, then it would be uh, much more obvious. But if they all did it together, they... Their theory was that it would, it would hide the fact for a while, and it did. But uh, that's, that's all coming to an end now. And uh, uh, what I think is going to happen, in, in fact, I'm positive what they're going to try, is uh, they're going to offer as a solution a gold-backed inter international money. <clears throat> I've seen this coming for years. I've predicted it. Uh, nothing could be worse. Gold, money, uh, although it would make a fine uh, competitive currency, an alternative currency, and I, I don't. I, I support that entirely. Uh, however, as as the prime uh, money that's good for the payment of taxes, it's never worked well uh, for the general population. And really, no no commodity-based money could, because the commodity in question that was going to serve as the new backing for money. Imagine a bill wending its way through the various uh, legislative committees of the nation. Uh, which, you know, would be covered in the media. Imagine what would happen to the futures market of that commodity. Well, it would skyrocket. And uh, in anything that can be electronically traded uh, will be traded and monies will be made. And those monies will not be made by the general population. It will be made by the 1% of the people who have most of the wealth at this point anyway. And so that's just going to further consolidate wealth. And this is the pattern we've seen with uh, gold money systems throughout history, they never serve the middle class. They always serve the 1%, the people who own the gold. It just makes common sense. Uh, it's uh, gold money never serves uh, decentralization of power. It always promotes centralization of power because gold itself is centralized money. And so the bankers love this idea. You know, they can go with gold money for a while, and then when that fails, then They'll probably return to the exact same system we have today, you know. But when when this cycle, you know, works its way back and forth in time periods of generations, uh, you know, it'll it's it's much easier to keep uh, the people 
uh, stupefied as to what's going on. But that's what's going to happen, and so all I'm trying to do is get sufficient number of people educated that gold is not the answer, that uh, a return to debt-free government-issued money, just as uh, nations have had for hundreds if not thousands of years, with some way of having it be in, in the control of we the people through their elected government, uh, is is really the only answer. Now, I'm not talking about, for example, here in the United States, giving the U.S. Congress the power to create this money and tell the Treasury how much of it to create, because obviously the temptation will be great to overspend to get themselves reelected. So that's not the idea. Some other body of government has to be formed, which uh, more closely represents we the people, uh, whose sole task is to determine the quantity of the national money. And uh, then and only then can we actually escape this uh, debt money system, which does nothing but foster booms and the resulting busts, uh, with we the people uh, suffering with every different turn of the cycle. Uh, given that no bureaucracy ever wants to see its budget decrease or its number of employees shrink, some of the reforms that you're talking about, I mean, would that inevitably lead to smaller government? Uh, well, not necessarily. It could or it could not because it would lead to uh, drastically more efficient government. But uh, if you have a uh, debt-free government-issued money to where in the United States, for example, the, the interest paid on the national debt is equal to the entire discretionary budget of the U.S. Congress. So if, uh, if we eliminated the debt money system, uh, eliminated the national debt, and just the interest payments on this national debt, not, not even talking about the control that this gives the bank over the nation, just the interest payments alone, uh, would, you would be able to double uh, discretionary spending uh, on the part of the U.S. Congress, discretionary spending being uh, stuff that's not mandated, uh, uh, like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. One of the ways that we see, I'm not quite sure what the situation is like in the US, but certainly in the UK, the government are making a lot of noises about getting their borrowing under control. And one of the ways they're doing it here in Britain is through austerity measures. From As far as I can see, and a lot of other people can see, this has been terribly counterproductive because it's creating a lot of friction and a lot of ill will with very little in the way of results. Um, for example, government borrowing continues to rise even while they trumpet these austerity measures. And one thing that they're currently engaged in is they are taking people who are on benefits and living in rented accommodation. And if they have any spare bedrooms, not in regular use, they're booting people out of these homes and trying to put them into smaller ones the idea being that there'll be that with a, no spare bedroom, the rent will be lower. But when you look at the figures that this could potentially save, even if they succeed, versus the administration of the bureaucracy to achieve this, it's just it's purely window dressing, really. Well, that's interesting. I wasn't aware that that was a type of program that uh, the UK was uh, uh, trying to implement. But it doesn't surprise me. And and really, the people in the UK have got to develop. Uh, some sort of political muscle to go in the same direction. Uh, you know, it's just just like uh, just like in in the book version of the Wizard of Oz. There was the story about where all the little field mice could uh, pick up the sleeping lion and move him if they all worked together. But 
unless everybody works together towards a common goal. And that common goal is really the return of the money power to we the people, where, where at this point uh, it's been uh, completely taken away from us and it's in the hands of the commercial banks. And so every, every economic machination that a government does at this point, for sure, absolutely guaranteed, will benefit the commercial banks to an either, even further extent than they are now. So my point is that this is not surprising that this isn't working out so well for the average uh, UK citizen. And we've just got to understand that the, until we address the root of this problem, just as William Jennings Bryan said in the 1896 uh, election, uh, election here in the United States, and that is an, until monetary reform, no other reforms are possible. Uh, because all other reforms, all other legislation will always go to the benefit of the bank because the bank is controlling and manipulating uh, the Congress in the United States or legislatures elsewhere in the world. Now, one thing that many commentators said, mostly not mainstream commentators, it has to be said, but some said in the wake of the 2008 banking crisis that one of the problems was that usually the worst punishment that a complicit banker could fear to face would be early retirement and a you know a gargantuan payoff doesn't sound really like harsh punishment and people have said until we actually not unjustly but until we actually take someone who's guilty of serious malfeasance incompetence and put one of these people behind bars then you know the banking system the the top management are not going to take their responsibilities seriously and of course they're, they're different colors they're not all uh, evil to a man but the system as, in general is not going to take the regulations and what have you seriously until they fear personal accountability on some level well that's true and that's been that movement has been that battle cry has been going on here in the united states for three or four years and uh finally uh, some major bankers are uh, have been indicted here in the U.S. just within the last couple months, and uh, whether any of them actually go to jail or not remains to be seen. But uh, you know, they they prefer paying fines. For example, J.P. Morgan just uh, suffered a fine of uh, nearly 500 million dollars, which you know is is a huge amount of money, but to a company using its derivative structure to cre create off-the-book profits uh, that could easily run into the tens of trillions of dollars, a $400 million fine maybe is not so much punishment. Another problem that we see in terms of the effects of the debt-based system is that it sort of it demands perpetual growth and because, of course, the, the bankers create the principle but not the interest within the monetary system. Of course, perpetual growth is impossible. And this is where the monetary system in its fictional guise runs up against the so-called real wealth, you know, actual resources as they exist in the world. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the problem with compounding interest is it's not a straight line graph. It's a it's a hyperbolic graph. And so you really can't argue with arithmetic. So at some point, we're going to have to make a change. And the question is, how much pain has to be applied to the average voter before we get 
what the root cause of our problem is and go after that. Uh, amongst monetary reformers here in the United States, we believe that we could completely solve this problem within a year and get, uh, we, we wouldn't get completely out of debt, but we would certainly uh, get to a much more prosperous state. Of course, there are those who believe that we should just not pay the interest on the, the, the debt that, we, that we've currently incurred, but I think you can even you can even just go ahead and pay it off as slowly as the uh, bonds come due, and still be way better off. You just uh, you'd be paying them off with uh, United States notes instead of Federal Reserve notes. And uh, so there's there's plenty of different ways to get out of this to improve the situation. And uh, I, I just hope we don't have to endure too much pain to get there. Since centuries and uh, millennia gone by. There was the idea of the debt jubilee, which is the periodic forgiveness of all debts, a kind of a resetting of the system, which was deemed necessary to maintain social order. I mean, are we in a system now that is so incredibly complex that that sort of concept, even on a piecemeal basis, would just be impossible? No, it wouldn't be impossible at all. I mean, that's what that's what hair, the term haircuts are all about. It's just the old concept of the Jubilee resurfacing. And, you know, the, the Sumerians discovered that <clears throat> you had to have a complete cancellation of all debts every 50 years or the society would crumble. Well, uh, certainly in the uh, privately owned central bank system, if you're counting from England, it's been over 300 years now. If you're counting just the American Federal Reserve System, it's been 100. So... Uh, they've uh, managed to engineer the system to survive longer, but I think that the crash is going to be much more significant once it gets out of their control. So, yeah, you can do a jubilee, or you can just you can pay off the bonded indebtedness, uh, which I think is a much more practical political si situation, something where you would get actual legislation through the legislature much more quickly if you uh, did not go the Jubilee route. But I, I'm, Jubilee route is perfectly fine with me. And, you know, then I, I, I neglected to fully answer the previous question just because I forgot what the question was. But you reminded me when you are asking your last question. And that is we, we really have to turn to an interest-free, at least compound interest-free, uh, uh, I, I was I was kind of I have to admit that I was wrong about this. I was against that because of the time value of money concept that if people wouldn't be earning money from money lent, then there'd be no lending. Well, the way you get around that is you front load all the interest as a uh, a one time fee and uh, banks, for example, would calculate in how large this one-time fee has to be to pay their employee salaries, their mortgages, their electric bills, all that sort of thing. And then uh, let's say you go out and you want to you buy a house and you want to borrow 300,000 pounds. Well, uh, after you pay the fees, you would only really get 270,000 pounds, and the 30,000 pounds then would go towards fees. It would be just one time, and then from that point on, you just have a, a straight line uh, debt payment that would uh, there'd be no interest reduction because there would be no further interest. It would be all principal reduction from that point on. And we have to get to that type of system, or uh, society is just not going to be able to not collapse with this many people on earth. Yeah, the, the sort of figures you just quoted in that little example were quite far away from the sort of figures that are typical now. For example, off the top of my head, at rates the last time I borrowed any amount of money, if you in the UK, if you borrowed 
£100,000 to buy a property, you would be required to pay back, albeit over 25 years, two hundred and say £220,000, you know, more than twice what you borrowed. And it sort of seems, you know, you can stomach it over 25 years. But when you look at the bottom line like that, it's really quite shocking. Right. And as you said, the that's uh, 150% interest. And you know, you start calculating that over over centuries of the lifetime of a nation, and you can see how this is just totally not sustainable. And it's the the worst sort of Ponzi scheme because the the interest is is never created, and so we have to go and steal it from each other. And that just uh, it's uh, it's a one way ticket to economic hell for the for the anybody who's who's not part of the banking class. Now, again, the crash of two thousand eight did inevitably raise. The, you know, the nature of the banking system, issues around it, problems with public and private finance in the popular consciousness. But yet there is still widespread public ignorance about these matters. On the ground in the US, uh, what's your feel for what's happening sort of amongst the general population as to how they're maybe beginning to get to grips with and get a better understanding of these issues and, and some of the things that perhaps need to change? It's amazing the the amount of uh, of people who are coming around to this <clears throat> is astounding, and it's not just in the United States. I mean, I went to re- recently spoke, for example, in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and there were uh, hundreds of students who would come up to me and and shake my hand and uh, be so enthusiastic and and say, "Oh, money masters, money masters," and it just blew me away that uh, you know here on the exact other side of the earth, people were watching the you know kids, university students, were watching the money masters and getting something out of it and using it as their template going forward. So. Um, you know, you can only repress the truth for so long, and eventually it's going to get out of control and overwhelm them. Now, the movements in this direction in Congress are still somewhat nascent, but you have someone like Ron Paul, for example, who, when following his presidential run, his spectacular fundraising campaign, certainly his profile went through the roof. I mean, the guy was on TV over here, which rarely happens for any um, U.S. politician who isn't mainstream. And then, of course, there was the bill to audit the Fed. So, um, are you seeing similar encouraging signs in the in uh, DC? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's it's growing uh, head over heels here in this country as well. And like I say, it'll only take one more shock, uh, a major significant downturn of the stock market, and people are going to really start demanding changes. They're going to see that they have been lied to, that uh, the Fed does not have it under control, and uh, they're going to demand uh, answers. Now, one of the interim measures that uh, we're seeing sort of flowering locally as people try to take a step back from the system, as it were, and whether whatever changes are coming down is the rise of local currencies. Now, I know there's uh, quite a few of those dotted around the US, and certainly we've seen an increasing number here in the UK, and no doubt they exist around the world. And that's been a very positive development. But there was also sort of a rather worrying case, that of... Um, Bernard Vaughan Nothaus and the Liberty Dollar, which I don't know what your take on that was, but I thought that was quite an outrageous infringement. I could see what the the U.S. government's case was, but I just didn't stand up to common sense scrutiny. Well, I I kind of have a different take on that because I know Bernard very well, and uh, he and I uh, have not gotten along in the past, so maybe I'm not the the best person to answer that. Okay, well, that's fair enough. But uh, maybe your thoughts, just, you know, closing thoughts on on local currencies. 
I'm all for them, and especially in in a time of uh, the next big crash, they're going to have increasing importance. There were 3,000 of them here in the United States during the 1930s, so uh, they served very well. You know, people need money. They need some type of way to trade, and you, it, it shows people that you can literally make up your own form of money, and it works. So uh, complementary currencies here in the United States are perfectly legal if you do them right, as long as you don't imitate uh, U.S. money too close. And so uh, they'll serve an increasingly important role as the economy crashes. Okay, well, in closing, Bill, tell listeners about uh, websites. I know you've got several for the different films you've done. You've got the new DVD, Jekyll Island, and you've published many books. So just share that info and anything else you'd like to put out there. Yeah, well, you can go to BillStill.com uh, for my older stuff. My new thing is uh, my new. Uh, uh, documentary is called Jekyll Island. It can be found at jekyllisland-themovie.com and Jekyll is J-E-K-Y-L-L. So jekyllisland-themovie.com. Excellent. Well, Bill, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you. Well, folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please check out the website. That's LegalizeFreedom.com legalize-freedom.com where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics including world affairs, politics and economics, science and technology, religion and spirituality, conspiracy and alternative history. You can also browse and buy a range of books and DVDs from our guests and if you're feeling generous make a donation to help keep the site up and running. Until next time I'm Greg Moffat and you've been listening to legalizefreedom.com. 